This is the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast with Jay Gordon Duncan. Hello, friends, and welcome to a Wednesday Wisdom episode of the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast with Jay Gordon Duncan. And if you're wondering why the J, the answer is I am not a bagpipe player. And if that joke doesn't make any sense, I encourage you to check out episode zero where I explain that joke as well as the purpose of the This Is Gonna Hurt podcast. But as to today's episode, our Wednesday Wisdom episodes are this. I am sharing the audio of my sermons from the church I pastor, Evident Grace Fellowship in Fredericksburg, Virginia, as well as sermons from churches I have pastored prior, as well as sermons that I've preached at other places. And I'm sharing them with you for this reason. My sermons are usually not too long. They're between 30 and 40 minutes long. And by sharing them with you, it gives you a chance for some spiritual encouragement midweek. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope it's challenging and encouraging, like I said. And if it is, would you please send me a note at uh, gordon at jgordonnuckin.com or maybe even share this sermon online, Facebook, or on your Instagram story. I hope you enjoy it. So let's get to the sermon. You care about your business. That's why preformed and prepackaged approaches to marketing do not help. Because of that, CTP Marketing and Consulting seeks to understand you, your product, and your services, and they will partner with you in creating a customized approach to meet your marketing needs. Towards that end, CTP offers traditional print marketing, social media services, SEO, event coordination, campaign creation, fundraising, and a host of other services. Reach out to them today and see if this personal approach to marketing can help you grow your business. You can find them at ctpmarketplace.com or you can email them at admin at ctpmarketplace.com. That's admin at ctpmarketplace.com. Reach out to them today for their free evaluation and see if they can help you grow your business and help you meet your goals. Uh, You guys forgive me a little bit. Many Sundays I preach without notes. Uh, I got a bunch of notes this Sunday. It's the most familiar passage in all the Bible, but I've got notes. If I'm a little slower, that actually might be a good thing. Uh, the world is more familiar with David and Goliath than they are Jesus Christ. If you ask people who Jesus is, they'll say it's the good guy in the Bible. If you ask people who David and Goliath is, there's actually more familiarity with that story than there is Jesus. Uh, it gets used in every arena from uh, the NCAA tournament when the mixed metaphors of the Cinderella story coming up to fight Goliath happen, uh, happens in the political season about who is the Goliath and who is the David. The stories just show up everywhere. Anytime there's something large uh, that needs to be overcome, anytime there's an underdog, uh, David and Goliath is the language that gets used quite often. So in that, I'm also going to encourage you, church, uh, to ask ourselves what do we know and not know about this passage. Here's what I'm going to do. I've got three rules when I preach uh, an incredibly familiar passage. So here are my three rules. One, I don't want to moralize or spiritualize this passage. What that is, when you moralize or spiritualize the passage, you just say, be like this person or don't be like this person. So I'm not going to tell you that overcoming your credit card debt is Goliath and you're David. I'm not going to tell you that if you've got a big, giant health goal, you want to lose weight or you want to run a marathon or something, that thing is not Goliath and you're not David. We don't have a Philistine champion threatening to kill you and you're not the anointed king of Israel. We want to go a little bit further than that. Here's the second rule. Don't try to be cute or original. 
Men and women have preached and taught this passage for over 5,000 years. I don't need to say anything original. There's nothing original for me to say. Third rule, be faithful to the text. That's what I'm going to try to do for us. Just try to be faithful to the text and preach it to you today. Here's what David and Goliath is really about. It's about the world hating God and his people. And it's about will there be a response from God and his people. That's what this passage is about. Scripture is clear that if you stand up for the name of God in Jesus Christ, the world will hate you. And the question is, how will God and his people respond? That's what this passage is really about. Uh, Martin Luther, the famed reformer and pastor, said that when we preach this sermon, like, oh, this is how you overcome things, that he called those sermons a theology of personal glory. And if you read this sermon, this story, it's, the, it's just not about personal glory at all. It's about the glory and the honor of God. I, I know a local pastor, and he arrived in this area with great enthusiasm. And he looked out over at Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania, and in this area, I agree with him, he noticed two things. One, he felt like the Christians in this area were suffering from massive amounts of legalism. Legalism is when you add lots of rules on top of the Bible, and you try to show how good you are to God and each other by obeying those rules. That's legalism. And he felt like the Christians in this area were suffering from that. And additionally, he felt like there wasn't a vibrant proclamation of Jesus to non-Christians. Many Christians have never shared the gospel with anybody. So he hit the ground running, excited to help grow his church in those two areas. And initially, he saw his church grow in those areas. Both a freedom from the gospel and a proclamation of the gospel. But after a few years, typical obstacles arose. The response from the community was less. Found his church guilty of infighting. He even felt aggression and conflicts and complaints towards him. He was discouraged. And what he shared with me is this passage is what got him through. Not because he was David. And not because Fredericksburg, Spotsylvania was the Philistine army. What this passage did for him is he saw that there is going to be obstacles in the proclamation of Jesus always. And what he also saw is that God will defend his honor and glory and use his people to do so. See, for us, my friends, that is what we need to wrestle with as we look at this passage. The world is in conflict with a true and living representation of our Heavenly Father And if we live that out, we will be in conflict with the world. And if we're faithful, we have an opportunity to speak of a holy and righteous God who saves people through the work of Jesus Christ and establishes that work throughout the world in the Holy Spirit. So towards that end, we're going to pursue this big idea. I know most Sundays I have a big picture question. This week we're going to look at a big idea, and it's this. The big idea this week is God's champion and your part in the fight. And I promise you I'm going to do my best not to moralize or spiritualize this. 
Towards that end, we're going to find three things about God's champion in your part in the fight. First, we're going to see that there is a war between the world and God's people. There is. Second, we're going to see that the world demands a response. And third, the people of God are called to defend his honor. That's where we're going to go this week. Let's look at the first. There's a war between the world and God's people. Uh, Because we've already read through these 20-some verses, I'm not going to read through them all again. Uh, The story, I think, is succinctly presented to us. And so as we walk through those verses, I'm going to pull out things to highlight these truths. First of all, there's a war between the world and God's people. In verses 1 and 2, you see this. The Philistines have gathered their armies for battle, and that Saul and his men of Israel have also gathered. That's what's going on so far. Now, if you have any familiarity, even if you don't, what you'll find in the Scriptures is that the Philistines seem to be the constant irritant to the people of God. They always seem to be a problem. They're mentioned as early as Genesis 10. Because the Philistines are from descendants of Ham, Noah's son. So they show up really early in the Bible. And when we get to Exodus 23, there's a promise that when the people get into the promised land, that promised land is going to be displacing the Philistines. So you see where the conflict comes from way early in the Bible. God says, hey, I'm going to give you the promised land, and that promised land is going to be the Philistine territory. So you can imagine that's why they're always in fighting. And 1 Samuel has really been a study of that fight. Uh, let me remind you of a couple of things. Interestingly enough, tomorrow is one year ago we started this study. And it seems like I keep telling you it's going to end and it keeps extending because the passages are so rich for us. But here's what we've seen in the last year. And if you haven't been with us, here's a brief recap. In 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines utterly decimate the people of God. And that's when the people of God go, hey, maybe what we should do is bring the ark out into the battlefield, and that will help us win. And they get ultimately just decimated again. Thousands, tens of thousands of people die. 1 Samuel 7, God thunders on behalf of his people. In fact, the verse says, uh, the Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines. And so God rescues his people, and in that battle, I guess you can say the people of God won. 1 Samuel 13, the Philistines utterly defeat Israel. And that's when Saul, King Saul, gets worried. And he says, we need to offer a sacrifice. Hey, Samuel, can you come out and offer a sacrifice? And it takes seven days for Samuel to get there. So Saul can't wait. So he offers an unbiblical sacrifice. And guess what? They lose again. Finally, in 1 Samuel 14, Saul's son, Jonathan, defeats the Philistines. But because Saul made a rash vow, they can't finish that battle, and they're not utterly destroyed or set apart. So there's this constant back and forth. So when we get to 1 Samuel 17, here's the battle once again. And so verse 3, And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, and it was a valley between them. Okay, here's what we've got. we got one mountain, or at least one peak, where the Philistines are. Then there's this low valley, and then we've got the Israelites on the other side. This is about who owns the higher ground. I'm not a soldier. But what I think I understand from my reading is the higher ground is the more advantageous ground. Because when someone enters into that valley, you get to throw rocks, you get to throw, I don't know, what arrows, molten lava, I don't know what it is. But no one wants to enter into the valley. So there's a standoff. But they're close enough 
for there to be some sort of communication. So they bring out the Philistine champion named Goliath of Gath. And he starts yelling at him. Now, who is Goliath? Well, we all know, I think, by the name itself, he's big. Really big. Like, over eight feet tall, big. Now, before we hear that and scoff at it, it's not impossible. How many of you were NBA basketball fans in the 80s and 90s? I, I know I'm distancing a few. Wow, okay. Does anyone know who Muggsy Bogues is? Anybody? Like, he's my hero. 5'3 point guard from Wake Forest, because I'm taller than him, but it shows that the small guy is actually talented and can play in the basketball. How many of you, we're in D.C., how many of you know who George Murison is? Anybody? 7'6"? Like 350 pounds, they played at the same time. So, when the Hornets played the Wizards, you had a 5'3 guy. See, I'm taunting him because I'm taller. Like, he's not really that short. Like a 5'3 guy and a 7'6 guy playing at the, seven, at the same time. And Murasan had skills. It's not like he was just a, a lumbering man in the middle. The Israelites, by the way, at this point in time, were typically... Not very tall people, as best as we can tell, anthropologically. That's the hardest word I'm going to say today. Goliath is a big guy. And it's a fight for the higher ground. And they're within range. There's a military saying that if your enemy is in range, so are you. So there's a fight that could be happening. And the Philistine champion comes out. Now look at how, what he's wearing. He's got a helmet of brass, a coat of mail, greaves of brass on his legs, a target of brass on his back, and a spear. His head's covered. His front's covered. His back's covered. His shins are covered. He's got a spear that most people couldn't pick up, and he's got another guy just carrying his shield for him. So not only is he giant, he's got more armor than most people could carry. And he's standing on one side, and the Israelites are on another. And he starts taunting them. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Why are you here? Am I not a Philistine? And Are you not the servants of Saul? Now, there's some taunting going on here. Why are you here? I'm here, and your really tall king is here. Do you remember how Saul is described? Saul was described as head and shoulders above most men, which probably makes him my height, which makes me feel really good, right? He's like, hey, you're, tall, you're the army of your tall king, which is definitely taunting. I'm here. Why do we all have to die? Why? Makes no sense why we should all die. In verse 10, he says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Defying is really strong language. I defy you to send out a man. I defy you to pick one person to come fight me. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Sadly, they didn't see themselves up for the fight. Goliath's like, listen, I don't care. Jiu-Jitsu, Judy, Muay Thai, whatever you got, we'll do this. And Saul continues, unfortunately, to show himself to be the coward 
of the people of God, and not one who boldly trusts that God would defend them. In Genesis 12, that's where God presented himself to Abram, Abraham. And God said, hey, listen, Abraham, here's the thing. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And if someone curses you, I will curse them. That's the promise from God to the people of God. And Goliath's standing up here saying, where are you, army of God? Where's your God now? Surely you've got someone who would come out. We hear all your bold declarations about whose land this is. We hear your bold declarations of who God is. You don't have one person who has faith enough to come and fight? Let's talk about us for a minute. Because again, you're not on a ledge as the army of Israel. And we don't have a Goliath. But there are parallels that Scripture gives us. We don't wage a physical war. We do not. We don't wage a physical war over specific parcels of land. Now, through the work of Jesus Christ, the advancement of the, the, advancement of the kingdom of God is what? It's spiritual. The battle for the Christian is spiritual. Now, Avengers 1, that movie's 10 years old, so I'm going to spoil it if you haven't seen it, okay? The first time the Avengers fight together, Agent Coulson dies. If you don't know who this is, he's just a really, really good guy, right? <laughs> and Iron Man, Tony Stark, is walking around, crushed, and Captain America says, hey, is this the first time you ever lost a soldier? Tony Stark gets mad and he goes, we are not soldiers. But apparently they are. I'm afraid, however, that I think that's the approach of the church presently. We are not soldiers. But the language of Scripture in the New Testament is that you are. Philemon 1-2, Philippians 2, 2 Timothy, all the twos. You are a soldier. You are called into an advancement of the spiritual kingdom of God in this world. So we aren't taking physical property. We are advancing the cause of God, the declaration of Jesus Christ, and the declaration of righteousness in this world. So let me speak as clearly but cuttingly as I can for my heart and yours. None of us want to be Christians that are known as being judgmental and self-righteous and legalistic. I don't think we have anybody here that would say yes. But because of that, I'm afraid that the church in America has lost its voice because we don't want to be that. But we are promised that we will be in a conflict with this world if we are Christians. So if you are not in some way advancing the name of Jesus, and in some way, in conflict as a Christian, the world either just doesn't know you're a soldier, or they presume that your Christianity is not in conflict with this world. We either don't look like soldiers for the battle, or they just assume Christianity is another among all the others. But I promise you, if you speak of righteousness, 
and speak of obedience and speak against sin and speak of the name of Jesus Christ, you will be in conflict. The problem for Israel here is no one wants to go into war. There is a conflict. Again, friends, I don't want us to be self-righteous. I don't want us to be judgmental. We're not the people out there just running around going, you're this kind of sinner, you're this kind of sinner. We are called to be the people that say, Jesus Christ speaks against our sin. And without repentance, the destination of all who do not proclaim faith in Jesus is judgment in hell. And I have been spared by that, by the mercies of Jesus Christ, and I desire that for you as well. There is a conflict for the people of God. In the day of Goliath, everyone stood silent. Verse 12, the world demands a response. Now David, we get reintroduced to David. Now last week we were introduced to David as a, a, a lyrist or a guitarist. King Saul suffered under anguish. And David was brought in to play for him. And Saul would find relief. And so David is like this part-time musician in the palace or the house of Saul. We're going to get introduced now to David in another form. What we find in verse 12 is that he's the son of Jesse. And he spends part of his time working for Saul. And then he goes back and he works as a shepherd. Because that's the job he's been given by his father, Jesse. He's the youngest of eight. Verse 14, David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. So his, the three older brothers are soldiers. David went back and forth from Saul to feed his sheep. David's a good son. He's got this part-time job, and then he comes home and helps dad out. He doesn't get tired. If he does, we don't hear about it. Look at verse 16. For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took a stand, morning and evening. Every morning and every night, for 40 days... Goliath came forward and said, will anybody defend the honor of God? Bring it. If you defeat me, our whole army will submit. It's an introduction of our characters. But what this is, is seeing that the world is demanding a response. They are. Unfortunately, what's happening for the people of Israel is they're happy to be numbered among the people of God, but they're not willing to defend their God. Yes, they want to be among the people, but they don't want to defend him. Remember, the language here is, I defy the ranks of Israel. I have a friend here in town, a young man, young professional, and I love being around him because he takes such Great joy to tell people about Jesus. He really does. He has a weekly story to me about how he tells people about Jesus. He's constantly asking about you guys. What did you guys study this week? I was like, what about your church? We had this wonderful conversation. But he, he motivates me because he's just regularly excited. He's this young professional. And before you dismiss his youth, his profession and the proclamation of Jesus can be in conflict. He could lose his job by doing this. And sometimes we fear proclaiming Jesus because we've got too much to lose. In this case, we might just have too much. But he recognizes that his first call is to be a Christian, 
He recognizes that the world right now is demanding. Will any stand up for the honor of God? And this young man motivates me, moves me towards repentance. That even I, as my job as a professional Christian, if you will, there's times I shrink back from telling people of Jesus. But I see this young man, I'm like, what boldness. He knows the world is asking, will anybody respond and defend his honor? And he does. The world demands a response. Uh, the bulk of the story is really in our third point. The people of God are called to defend his honor. Look at verse 17. Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of the parched grain, ten loaves, carry them quickly. Take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token back from them. Love, Jesse. What a good dad. I'm worried about my sons. Here's what I want you to do. Here's food for them. There's food for their commander. And bring back a token. Like, bring something back to me to let me know that my three oldest are okay. So here's something. He's a smart guy, too. Hey, here's something for the three. Make sure the commander gets something, too. Make sure the guy in charge gets something as well. Because if we give something to the three and everyone else doesn't get something, we're going to be in trouble here. J- uh, David, go do this. At this point in time, David is merely a carrier. Just go do this. So David rose early and he went to the keeper and he dropped things off. Look at verse 23. David's talking to everyone. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. David hasn't heard this before. He just knows there's conflict going on between the Philistines and the Israelites. So while David's up there, handing out cheese and whatever else he brought in, grain, and he's making sure everybody's okay, he hears Goliath bellow what he's been bellowing. He hears the conflict that's centrally going on. Isn't this interesting? The largest conflict of Israel with most at stake right now, and no one is fighting. The conflict really here is, will anyone, defi- will anyone fight? All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him, much afraid. They're shrinking back. Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. Now, this is important. The men are like, hey, guys, have you seen this? They're trying to convince someone to go. If one of you guys will do it, you're rich. You're going to be royalty because you get to marry the king's daughter, and the house will be free. Dad doesn't have to pay taxes. That's what that means. That's not a bad deal. Dude, you're going to be rich. Doesn't someone want to be rich? You get to be married to the king's daughter. You're going to be royalty, and dad won't have to pay taxes. Doesn't someone want to do this? Don't get me wrong. Isn't there a lot at stake? If you lose, all of Israel loses. It's not like... There's nothing at stake. But there's no one who will defend the honor of God. Verse 26, here we go. And David said to the men, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Isn't that repetitive? But it's like he's telling the guys. It's almost like he's saying, Do you not hear what's promised to you? Do you not hear what's being promised if one of you dudes will man up? Didn't you hear what this guy just said? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine 
that should defy the armies of the living God. Now, this is important. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant between God and Abraham and his people. It was a physical sign that said, you're my people. Colossians 2 lets us know that that equivalency is baptism. Among the people of God. He's like saying, who is this non-believer, a person that God has promised to curse, that would defy us? Part of that is to say, don't you know who this is? God's promised to defeat these people. Here's an interesting side note, by the way. Uh, Earlier on, when uh, Goliath's armor is described, his coat of mail, that language in the Hebrew is like uh, a coat of snakeskin. Is the way the language, it's scaly. And if you look at the language of God's people in circumcision and God's people who are not uncircumcised, it begins in the Garden of Eden where there's a seed of the woman who are righteous and there's a seed of the serpent who are not among the people of God, which is traced throughout the early Old Testament through Ham, the son of Noah. And it's like he's saying, this is the line of, of the serpent all the way from the Garden of Eden. He's not among the people of God. He's uncircumcised. You're the people that God has promised to bless and protect. God's promised to curse this guy. He's defying the armies of the living God. And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Friends, we are blessed in this age with some wonderful, godly people and teachers. Pastors, writers of books, men and women. We are truly blessed. You have access to their writings, and to their preachings, and to their conferences. We are. You're a wonderful congregation who is steeped in study. I bump into you and you guys tell me what you've been reading, and what you've been listening to. Gordon, have you read or listened to this? Now I get to do the same with you. We're blessed. We're tempted to let them be the ones that go forward into the fight, though. Whereas we are called to defend the honor of God. David looks at him and he says, this is not someone who is sitting under the protection of God. He's defying us. Don't everyone see that? Don't you guys all see that? <clears throat> You see, I will admit this. The leaders of the people of God and of churches, I and we, me, have got to call the church into a righteous righteous proclamation and defense of Jesus Christ. It's funny, I keep doing all this military reading, and I guess this is a Memorial Day. Uh, I found this this week. Uh, U.S. Army Field Regulations, 1861. Coffee tastes better if the latrines are dug downstream from the encampment. You know what that means? Okay, if you're, if you're settling on, a, on a, a, a slope, put the toilets downstream. Because you put them upstream, your coffee's going to taste really bad. You got that? It's all going to flow downstream. And in 1861, I guess they needed to be reminded of that. But what that means is, It all flows downstream. I 
and your elders and your deacons, the godly men and women of this congregation, we need to be calling us to a righteous defense of God. That's next week. Let's talk about Jesus Christ for a minute. I got a whole other half of this passage. By the way, David wins, cuts the guy's head off. We'll talk about that in great detail next week, okay? If you didn't know, I don't mean to leave you in suspense. The sequel, David kills the guy with a couple of rocks, just goes man's up, cuts the guy's head up, just throws it at Saul's feet. It's beautiful. How do I preach this passage to you where we walk away from here other than just going, man, I'm not doing enough? Because that's I, I do want us to be convicted of our lack of defense of the honor of God. But I do want us to walk in the assurity that Jesus Christ brings victory to our hearts and enables us to such tasks. I don't want you to leave here with the sense of I've got to just try harder. I will have failed as a minister of the gospel if that's your takeaway. Let's talk about the victory of Jesus Christ and how he enables his people to righteously defend his cause. The parallels of what's going on here in Jesus Christ are amazing. First of all, David is a prefigure of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the son of David. Physically in his line, David was promised to be king. David was promised that there would always be someone in his lineage that would be king, and that is Jesus Christ, who is ultimately our king and the king of God's people. Before Jesus began his public ministry. He's baptized by John the Baptist. Do you know what happens right after that? Jesus goes into the wilderness and is tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. 40 days and 40 nights in the scriptures always represents God's testing. Always. So your Savior endured this on your behalf. 40 days and 40 nights of fasting and temptation by Satan himself, where Satan offered him everything. Do you want the riches of the world, Jesus? I'll give them to you. Why don't you just start commanding things to happen, just irresponsibly without God's command? Do that. Finally, worship me, Jesus, and I will give you this world. Every temptation we face. And Jesus faithfully endured that temptation for 40 days and 40 nights and walked out of it righteously and begins his public ministry to ultimately bring you in to forgiveness and to be numbered among the people of God who are protected by God. We're not uncircumcised Philistines. We're the baptized people of God who sit underneath his protection. So here's the thing. I'm not going to tell you that David and Goliath teach you how to live in victory. That sells a lot of books, but that's not what this passage is. David doesn't teach you how to live in victory. David teaches you how to live in light of victory already being brought to you. Because your victory over sin and death and Satan has been brought by Jesus Christ. 
Your greatest enemy was not a Philistine Goliath. Your greatest enemy was your sin in your heart. But the sin in your heart has been conquered through the work of Jesus Christ. He obeyed when he didn't. He died as we should have. And he rose victoriously so that we can have a hope in heaven and live in light of his victory. So now what the people of God are enabled to do is when the world declares who will stand up and defend the honor of God, you are able to do so. Because you sit underneath the righteous honor of God given to you by Jesus Christ. So we are enabled to be bold, not to speak of our own power or of our own abilities, but to speak of our weakness and our need and how it's met in Jesus Christ. And that is the message that our world so desperately needs. Friends, let's move towards a conclusion. Uh, For our guest, each week I end with um, a truth, an application, and an action. Uh, A truth that we can kind of summarize, an application, live knowing this, and an action, a to-do. So this week our big idea was this, God's champion and your part in the fight. Here's our big idea. Christ ends the world's hostility with God through the cross and the ongoing proclamation of the gospel by his people. The war is done. Jesus has rose as the victor over death and sin. But we live in a world that still sin resides. You are victorious over sin and death because you are forgiven eternally. We continue in the process of growing in obedience. That's called sanctification. The proclamation of that victory happens through your proclamation of the gospel in the world. Here's how we live in light of that. Here's our application. Live knowing that Christ ends the conflict between the world, Satan, your sin, and God. We've got to live every day knowing that Jesus is victorious. As you struggle with sin this week, as you are so tired of returning like a dog to its vomit to its sin, know that sin has been conquered by Jesus Christ. Father, help me, I use the word appropriate, help me appropriate your victory over my sin to that sin there. And God will enable you to be confident and bold and faith-filled. Action. This week, boldly proclaim Christ by name. Not for victory, but out of victory this week. Let me explain what that means. We've got to speak the name of Jesus. His name, outside of our household, has to be uttered. To one another and to the world. Not so you can go be victorious, but because you have already been declared victorious through Jesus Christ. There's nothing you can lose here for his sake in this world that would matter. Nothing. Nothing at all. Friends, we've just got to speak the name of Jesus. And I will tell you each week, if you are fearful of speaking the name of Jesus, just invite someone here. That's fine. I will speak the name of Jesus. In fear and trembling. But we've got to own that mission of declaring Jesus to our hearts, to one another, and to the world. Let's pray that God would enable us to do that. Let's bow our heads. Father, I can't wait to get to the second half of this verse, these verses, so we can see that victory. And Father, we need Father, let us all walk from this point on in joy and thanks. Our victory has been won. Father, I know that a proclamation as such like this may move some of us to guilt and shame. Father, remove that from us. If we experience guilt and shame, just help us confess it and move us on 
to faith-filled soldiers. Father, that language is difficult for us. But it is the glorious privilege that we all have who proclaim Jesus Christ. We are not up to this task. But Jesus has been and is to enable us to be obedient. Father, may we sing joyfully and take the Lord's Supper, knowing that you equip us to every task to which you call us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.